Welcome to Your Parenting is Showing, a podcast about what happens when your nice, smooth, professional front is upended by your parenting backstage in pandemic time. Where two so-called experts bring their friends on to talk about their own pandemic parenting wins and blunders, highs and lows, or as we used to say when our kids were little, popsicles and poopsicles. I'm Ellen. I'm a child psychologist in Boston. And I'm Molly, a local church pastor in Berkeley, California. And together we wrote a parenting book aiming to blend the best of child psychological science with a progressive Christian wisdom. To guide our parenting on both the easy days and the really, really messy ones, from toddler to teen and beyond. Welcome everyone to Your Parenting is Showing. Today, we have Dr. Ann Fischel with us as our guest. Um, Dr. Fischel is a family and couples therapist, educator, and author. She's the co-founder and director of the FamilyDinnerProject.org. It's a nonprofit started in 2010 that champions family dinner as an opportunity for family members to connect with each other through food, fun, and conversation about things that matter. Anne also directs the Couples and Family Therapy Program at Mass General Hospital in Boston. And I, Ellen, have had the privilege of her mentorship and wisdom for many years now at MGH. And I'm so pleased that she agreed to be one of our first guests here on the podcast. Anne lives in the Boston area with her husband. And she has two, I don't know, Anne, shall we say mostly grown sons? (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, Anne. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. What a what a privilege to join you too. Um, Molly knows you well through me. <laughs> yes, from from our years of writing our book together, um, Ellen, just saying your praises. And so it's so so wonderful to meet you in person. I'm so grateful for all the groundwork you've done to lay track for giving families more um, joyful, meaningful time together. Well, thank you, and I certainly enjoyed reading your book. So it's a mutual fan club. (laughs) Yay. It's the best kind. Exactly. (laughs) So, and the premise of our podcast is um, a a sort of a spin on parenting in a pandemic. Um, Molly and I, we wrote our book based on our conversations much about our own parenting and have been talking more these past months about what pandemic parenting has revealed to us about ourselves and our children and our families. Um, and I know you've been doing some interviews and writing about this, um, particularly at this time where uh, families even that may not have been able to find time to share meals in the past are now sharing nearly every meal together, right? Three squares, nine snacks, the midnight rating of the refrigerator, <laughs> all the meals. <laughs> yeah. That's right. It's like the um, the Dorothy Parker quote, I married you for better or for worse, but not for breakfast and lunch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dorothy Parker, channeling her yeah. spirit so hard these days. So true. So, Anne, what are you hearing from families about maybe their proud moments or their not so proud moments around food and eating and sharing meals in a pandemic? Oh, well, I, I hear a bunch of things. I hear that some of the ways of engaging kids at the dinner table don't really work so well mm. uh, during the pandemic. You know, it's hard to say, how was your day when we've been stuck together all day? <laughs> we know how your day is. <laughs> yes. There's no, no mystery left. So at the 
at the family dinner project, we've been trying to think of some uh, different ways that different kinds of questions that families can ask to sort of spark conversation. Mm. Um, so uh, one game that's really gotten a lot of traction, um, I've heard a lot of families really enjoy this game, is 20 questions about a family memory, mm. where each person at the dinner table thinks of a memory and then everybody asks yes or no questions to see if they can guess which memory that person is thinking about. Oh, and wonderful. It's, it's kind of fun because it, it, it makes the point that we weren't always stuck in this pandemic. We have memories that happened before and surely we'll have memories that happen afterwards. And it's a chance for parents to kind of highlight memories that they want their kids to hold on to and, it's kind of fun to see what is top of mind for your kids. You know, often they're very seemingly random memories that parents don't even remember. Um, <laughs> and, it, and it gamifies it too. So, which is just fun, you know, rather than just being a conversation, it's a game. There's yes. a little element of, of friendly competition in it. Yes. <laughs> so, so, you know, games are one way to kind of enliven conversation when we've been stuck together all day. And um, we've also been thinking about using technology in, in ways that maybe we didn't before, um, having dinner and a movie mm. um, where you might start and stop and ask kids, you know, how would you have directed that scene? Or mm. as one family told us, they made Ratatouille. And then watch oh, and then Ratatouille, Ratatouille. <laughs> and compare oh, that's fun. <laughs> what, they made, what was on the film. Um, so that was another kind of fun thing. And then, you know, the ways that uh, I think a lot of us have been connecting virtually with, I certainly am connecting with my adult sons who, who don't live with me, who live in different cities. And I've been connecting with my sister and her family in California uh, for holidays mm. and for some just weekday dinners in ways I never would have before. And, you know, I think that's something that's new that I'm going to want to continue with as I think, you know, a lot of families will do that. They'll, yeah. they'll find that these virtual dinners are actually pretty engaging and open up things in ways we hadn't really known we could do. Yeah. We have good uh, friends who really we refer to as our family because they're they're that close, and uh, they moved to Colorado um, just it, it's sort of in the midst of the pandemic. Um, and we started doing Zoom or Google Hangout dinners with them or hors d'oeuvres with them, and thought, well, this is a this is a great thing because we never would have thought to do this. Um, had the pandemic not happened, I think when when we even though we knew they were moving and going to be so far away, yeah, Ab absolutely, yeah. I have a real life example too. Our um, our older child is just turned nineteen. Actually, he moved um, from California. He left left home and moved to Boston for about six months, 
And I'll tell you, before he left, it was really hard to get him to the dinner table the last couple of years. Like he'd maybe finally drag himself there halfway through the meal or the end of the meal. But once he left that, that space that opened up, he became really homesick for us and um, was much more willing to come to the dinner table as a Zoom. You know, we just kept an open Zoom link and we text when it was time. And sometimes we'd even cook together, you know, him in Boston, because he's, you know, a bachelor eating late and and we, you know, we, we've never shared the kitchen so peacefully <laughs> with him in Boston and me in, in California, but it's been really sweet. Now he's home actually he just came home last week. So we get him, we get to hug him as well as eat with him, but it was great wow. to have that lifeline. Yeah. That's so interesting that it would be easier for him to come to a zoom table than the actual table. I mean, yeah. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Yes. Yeah. But maybe and that little bit of distance also. Absolutely. For, yeah. For greater intimacy. I, I hear that from some of my patients too, that they they feel they open up more over Zoom than they do in person. Much like I think text messaging for lots of parents and kids has been sort of a gateway to, to deeper conversations that they're more yes. comfortable texting back and forth about things than they might be having to talk face to face. Yeah. yeah, it's like that parallel play concept, right? Mm. Yes. I love the 20 questions game too, because it's about building family stories, right? It's it's recalling family stories and building on family stories, creating new family stories. Oh, remember during the pandemic, we used to play yes. 20 questions yeah. of a memory at dinner. Um, and I think building those narratives is so important, right? Yeah. For families, for relationships. Yeah, I mean, it just you're saying that you're sort of highlighting that makes me think about how important s storytelling is. Um, there's research that suggests that kids who know their family stories are more resilient and yes. have greater self-esteem and have a better sense of the future. And sort of knowing that, I think there are opportunities during the pandemic to bring to the fore family stories that have to do with grandparents who overcame adversity or um, went through World War II or the Depression or the AIDS epidemic or polio or yeah. uh, had a broken pipe or, you know, whatever it might be and wondering what they learned from those crises and um, even if they're not alive, what they might have to share with us mm. to help us yeah. get through Amen. the I meant because I, I feel like so much of what our kids are hearing is that um, life is going to continue to be really disrupted for them. Like even as the as we start this the long tail of the end of the pandemic, there's global climate change on their side of it. You know, we just reentered the Paris Accords, but what we're hearing is it's not enough. Like none of it's enough. And I know my kids who are a little bit older, they're both teens, are very anxious for the future um, and what it might be for them and what the world will be. So just to have them set uh, in the midst of past, present, and future with the storytelling is, you know, all the more important for them as they yeah. face the unknown. Yes, absolutely. So you were asking, I think, at the beginning, what else I've noticed mm. about family dinners, and I guess an, um, two other things. One about the food, I've noticed um, that because it's you can't get every ingredient that you want when you want it um that i think families are are 
being a little bit more creative. Mm. You know, if you don't have tomato paste, maybe you use ketchup or um, you can't make your pasta dish exactly the way you usually make it. So you improvise. Um, and so I think there's a lot of inventiveness and um, trying out new things. So that would be one one thing that I've heard from from several families. I think it's so um, interesting too how much we're hearing. So many people are getting into baking and cooking, and I think yes. it's, I mean it's out of necessity, but I I think it's a little bit. Um, I mean, I, I love to bake. I know Molly prefers, I think, to cook. I prefer to bake because I like sort of the exact science and measurements of it. And uh, my husband likes to cook because he likes to experiment a little more. But I, I think, I don't know. Eric and I are, Eric and I are the artists. Yeah. <laughs> You're the scientist. <laughs> um, but, and well, I'm curious what you think, because I, I get the sense that it's a little bit about feeling in control of something, too, that we oh, feel sure. in control can create something. I think that I think that's a lot of it. I also think that our worlds were already so virtual and now during the pandemic they're mm. even more so. Mm. But cooking and baking is something that we can reliably do with our hands mm. that uses our senses and you know we can smell so embodied. Yeah. Um, and we can make things together in in real time and I think that during the pandemic, when we're doing online schooling and online work, that being able to handle real things with each other and, and make something out of nothing um, is particularly appealing. So true. Oh, yeah. I haven't thought of it that way, but that makes perfect sense. What was the third? And you said there's a third thing you've noticed. Oh, the Ooh. third thing I've noticed is just how much more intensity of feeling there is in families, um, whether it's frustration or anger or sadness over all the losses, um, the big losses, of course, that mm. many families have suffered in terms of a, a death of a, of a loved one, or but the losses of, of jobs, the losses of celebrations and anniversaries and funerals and all of that. And since the family mealtime is when we come together and we really hear how we're doing, often how we're doing is much more intense. And I think families are really having to find ways at the dinner table or lunch table to make room for a range of feelings. Mm. Yeah. It sounds really simplistic, but... You know, we try to have our bad moods at different times. We try to toggle. <laughs> we can't always manage that, right? And and there have been some flashpoints, particularly in the last, you know, in the last 10 months, like around um, civil the civil unrest, you know, racial injustice, and, and particularly the last couple of weeks, just waiting for the other shoe to drop, you know, wondering if, if there was going to be vi more violence when we were all extremely tense. And here's the simplistic part. It just, it actually helped to say, we're all having really big feelings right now. And that's totally valid. Like just to name that out loud, let oxygen back in the room and you could kind of see everyone able to visibly relax. And again, I have older kids, so they're better self-regulated than, you know, a three-year-old or a six-year-old, but just to name that and say, we're all having big feelings and that's perfectly all right. That's, that's exactly what it should be right now. <laughs> yeah. I think it's simple, but it's so wise too. Um, 
and I think there's something also just comforting about having a, uh, the ritual of family meal time mm-hmm. when everybody's having big feelings. Um, it's kind of holds families together. It sort of reminds them that we've been through a lot of different times together and the meal time can be kind of an anchor and mm-hmm. it's predictable. And I think adults as well as kids really rely on that, on mm. those rituals, those times when we sort of show up in our quirky ways and remind ourselves, this is who we are. You know, this is where we care, which is where we customarily sit at the table. And um, this person runs out of gas about 10 minutes into dinner. Oh yeah, that's what always happens. <laughs> this person still eating very slowly an hour later. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so true. And, and I think the this that swaddle and that holding of ritual, we noticed that I know um, in our family, we celebrate Easter. Um, but, you know, Easter happened in April. We were just burnt out. I don't know. I think we just, we didn't, have the energy. My kids don't have any particular foods that they love at Easter time. So it just seemed easier to sort of let it go. And we did a family zoom, but we didn't do a meal. Um, oh. And it didn't feel like Easter, even though the meal is not the the focus of our Easter celebration necessarily. Um, and then we, we didn't make that mistake again. So for Thanksgiving and Christmas, we did have a family meal and it wasn't the traditional Thing we would do or have any other year. We tried to have a favorite in there, something kind of traditional, but it was just, no, we need, we need to do this. We need to have a meal um, to feel like this is an occasion that we are um, maybe celebrating isn't the right word, but recognizing or acknowledging the day in some way. Yeah. Some of, sorry, go ahead, Ann. I was just saying that with the family dinner project, families that we spoke to, some really tried to keep a placeholder for um, having a traditional Thanksgiving dinner, even if not everybody could be there, but they sort of meticulously had the same foods that they always had. Or, and then other families just threw up their hands and said, let's not even try. Mm-hmm. And one family um, had a, a dinner of favorites. They had ice cream sundaes. They had um, I forget now, but it was, it had nothing to do with Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. It just everyone, everyone got to pick their favorite. Exactly. And have Maybe. a meal together that it didn't have to yeah. be the meal, right? But exactly. have a meal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was, I was going to say some of us are lucky enough to have, re- have traditionalist children who insist upon, you know, every ritual exactly the same, even if all the people aren't there. And so, um, and, that's my daughter and our family. And I've made three complete Thanksgiving dinners in the last two months. <laughs> Which, at first I was like, why am I doing all this work for three people? But it ended up being wonder, like the house, you know, I was, I love to cook. So I was just like in my flow for a day. She helped. She's gotten really masterful at making a bunch of things. Um, and we have leftovers for days and wonderful soup. So, and just the smells and the, it's also evocative. So um, I was I was glad she pushed me to to be to be to observe tradition. Turned out to be good for all of us, too, right? I mean, yeah. I made yeah. all the I made many of the Christmas cookies, 
Um, and then I just had to let go my guilt over throwing away so many Christmas cookies later on. <laughs> yeah. There were just too many left over and they went stale, but it was important enough that we made them to begin with. Yeah. I, I gave myself a break on making the cookies that I decorate that take for hours and hours. <laughs> I just thought this is the year I'm going to take the year off, but I made some of the other standbys just as a placeholder. And yeah. I think what we're saying is it's all about discernment, right? Like what do you need and what does your family need to hold you together and get this, get through this hard time? Is it to observe tradition or is it to dispense with it? Is it to be resilient and flexible or make new traditions? And following yes. in your example, Molly, what we talk about all the time, right? Your kid's temperament, that you have a traditionalist. She needed that, right? Or then another family might want something different or need something different. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned um, to, you know, I think all the big emotions, the big feelings at the dinner table. And I think, um, I know I have felt to some degree, and I've certainly heard from some other families that I work with that some parents especially are feeling quite a bit of anxiety around what their kids do and don't eat um, because maybe we're getting a front row seat much more of the time than we usually do. Um, I know I can sort of let it go that I don't really know what, what the 16 year old had at, at school lunch. Um, but at home I'm seeing everything, you know, he's, he's eating or not eating. Um, and certainly for people who have, disordered eating or issues with food. It's been a challenging time for many, I think. But um, do you have any sort of insights as to that, how, how to maybe help parents be more flexible when they are feeling that maybe justifiable anxiety about what their family's habits around food? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big uh, tenets of, that we promote at the Family Dinner Project that has seemed even more important during the pandemic is um, the idea of letting go of perfect or letting go of mm -hmm. what you, how you think things are supposed to go. Mm -hmm. Amen. That's our whole book. When it comes to family dinner, it doesn't have to be dinner. It could be breakfast. It doesn't have to be the whole family. It could be any two people is a family dinner. Um, it of course doesn't have to be, home-cooked meal or uh, organic produce, it could be takeout, um, you know, the benefits still, the benefits of mental health, the benefits, um, the academic benefits, all of those still flow, even if it's not perfect. Mm. So, you know, I think that's, that's one thing to keep in mind. And I think my, the best advice I ever heard about, um, picky eating or being worried about what your kids mm -hmm. are eating comes from a nutritionist named Ellen Satter who said it's up to parents to decide what to make and when to serve it and where, but it's up to kids to decide how much and whether they want to eat it. Mm. Um, and I think what she's getting at there is the less said about the food, the better that you, know, you don't want to cajole or bribe or uh, comment on your children's eating. You know, you offer the food, hopefully picking foods that you know your kids usually like to eat, you know, maybe trying something new and maybe they'll like it and maybe they won't. But then once it arrives, you eat it with gusto or, 
you might not like it either that you're <laughs> honest about that. <laughs> um, but you don't um, comment, you know, take another bite or if you finish that, you can have your dessert. You know, that tends to uh, have a double whammy where it makes the dessert more appealing and the peas or the vegetable less appealing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, I, and I think another bit of advice I heard from a, a nutritionist was that you don't need to evaluate your kid's intake um, each day. You know, you want to look at it sort of over the course of a, a week. Are they generally getting a lot of fruits and vegetables and not too much processed food and not too much sugar and some protein, a lot of whole foods. And on any one day they don't, that's, that's okay. That's right. I forgot about that. Isn't there that research study or something that sort of followed people if they were, if they were following intuitive eating, if kids were eating intuitively that over the course of a week or whatever it was that they followed, they actually were eating a balanced diet, even if they, only ate white, all white foods one day and all fruit the next day that sort of over time they were sort of intuitively exactly. and naturally balancing themselves out. I always remember exactly. that. Yep. I, I, I'd love to jump in here. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure what the question is, but just to acknowledge that there are some families this year who, because their kids are not in public school mm-hmm. um, and it, physically their kids are missing meals and they're having trouble um putting a range of foods on the table themselves. And, and that's, you know, another um, consequence and tragedy of this pandemic, just to name that. Yes. It's a, it's a huge and, and heartbreaking part of the pandemic. I think that food insecurity in kids has doubled or even tripled during the pandemic. Um, So yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it, it is something that, we really need to be mindful of and to do what we can. Um, um, absolutely. I know that demand at our local food pantry, I think has, has something like quadrupled. I live in a really expensive part of the country and, you know, choosing between food and rent, obviously you need a roof over your head. You're going to choose rent, but then that really puts a strain on the food budget. Um, and luckily, you know, we have, good produce here. So people can generally get good produce, but in lots at the food bank, but in lots of parts of the country and in midwinter, it's really hard to come by fresh food. Yeah. So the family project has been um, contributing our resources to um, emergency food delivery. That's not food, but we've been including game cards and conversation starters so that once food arrives at families' homes, um, these resources hopefully will help them have a more fun, more enjoyable family meal together. And mm. we've done that with about 150,000 uh, emergency food boxes. Wow. Um, across That's phenomenal. The- yeah. That's so awesome, that- man. That's amazing. Well, it's making me think even that um, giving me ideas of things we- I could do with my own boys who who like to make shopping lists of things that they want from the store or um, my older one likes to cook and make things and that we could add some extra things on our shopping list to purchase and bring to the food pantry or ways we can think about feeding other people during this time too. Yeah. Yeah. And 
And Anne, both both this part of the conversation and the previous part about when you have picky kids makes me realize it's not just the quantity or quality of food, it's the mood around food that determines yeah. how healthy the meal is, right? Like what's yeah. the, what mood are you generating around the meal you're sitting down to, whether you have a lot or a little. I remember yeah. the story, Molly, I think you put in the book about you had the parishioner who was a single mom um, and no matter yes. how much they had to eat or didn't have to eat, she and her daughter had the ritual of putting out cloth napkins and lighting candles at their shared dinner time. That mm -hmm. sticks with me. As yeah, that is the secret sauce of a family dinner. It's, I mean, food is what brings everybody to the table, but it's the atmosphere around the table. It's the quality, the warmth around the table that, um, is accountable for the benefits. Mm. Um, so if everybody has a chance to speak, if it's a, there's a chance to relax and maybe laugh a little bit, um, there's not too much negative talk, there's not stony silence. Um, this is what makes for uh, the way that family dinner is great for the, the body, the brain, and, and mental health, which um, you know, there's so many scientific studies to document that but those benefits really come from the as you say the atmosphere around the dinner table mm. is it time to ask Anne about how the pandemic how, how the pandemic has impacted your own parenting and what yeah. what lessons there are for you out of this yeah well um at first my, so I have two sons who were in their early 30s and it was very difficult, as I'm sure it is for many families, to think I could be a danger to them and they could be a danger to me. Mm. That was just such a such an awful thought that these people I love more than anybody in the world, we have to worry about being near each other for fear of making each other very ill. Mm. And then... It also turned out that we had somewhat different levels of uh, worry and risk that we were willing to take. And it took us a while to get to a place of sort of not being judgmental. <laughs> so at first... I think you're describing 92% of parents and adult children... <laughs> <laughs> and everyone now is wondering how you got to that place. Of yes. <laughs> what, well, what's your I guess the way it went maybe is fairly typical that for my, my kids, they felt that I was being, my husband and I were being too cautious and they would want to come visit. And mm -hmm. um, they thought, you know, if they quarantine for a few days or whatever, it would be okay. And, um, when my husband and I were pretty adamant that that didn't feel safe, um, we eventually, they eventually got to the position of, we honor whatever it is that you need to do, we will be respectful of. And on the other side, they have continued to go to, um, outdoor restaurants, um, and to have, one son has a backyard and he has friends over for dinner in the backyard, even as the weather plummets. <laughs> um, and these are things that my husband and I rarely have done during the pandemic. And so we 
we don't question that anymore. We don't say, when they say we're going to a restaurant, we don't say, are you, sh- it's 30 degrees. Are you sure you're eating outdoors? <laughs> we know that they are mm-hmm. and we, we trust them. Um, so that's sort of the rapprochement that we got to. So much of having to let go of control. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they're grown, you can finally relax, but there's still layers of letting go we all have to do with each other between parents and children. It's Yeah, it's so true. And adapting and being flexible. I remember you mentioned to you and the, the picnic. I know you said it had to be, I think it had to be rescheduled, but. I, yes, Thanksgiving had so many iterations. First, we were going to somehow get together, all of us, and then that went out the window. Then it was going to be a chilly outdoor picnic with a propane lamp. And that seemed just too much of, for the rainy day that Thanksgiving was. So we <laughs> called that off. Um, so for Thanksgiving, we just did a remote, a Zoom cooking class. My son um, taught me how to make a pie crust. And then we all had dinner remotely. Um, and then um, what we ended up doing, my husband and I drove down to New York for the day and had an outdoor picnic. It turned out to be an outdoor picnic in the rain. But it was <laughs> wonderful. Oh, it rained on your picnic. <laughs> <laughs> walked around Manhattan with our umbrellas after the rainy picnic. Um, and then for Christmas, we had an outdoor picnic um, with a fire pit that wasn't strictly legal where I live. But, uh, <laughs> we walked out. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Um, yeah, there's been a lot of improvising and um, calling audibles well, we, you know, we can't do this, but maybe we can do this at the last minute. So. Well, and building memories, right? I mean, that sort of goes back to the the 20 questions game. I think about that a lot. What stories will my kids tell about this time when they're, when they're grown and when it's passed and when I'm gone. Um, Right. Indeed. that, That legacy. So. Your, your family will have stories of many thwarted picnics. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel anything and that um, has there been anything that sort of has surprised you in, in working and just living through this time that maybe hadn't occurred to you, even in all the work that you've done working with couples and families? Um, I think, you know, like a medical illness, I think the pandemic has brought out the best and the worst in couples' relationships and family relationships. Mm. And I certainly hear from families and couples, and I found this in my own relationships, that there's something very um, intimate and tender and um, close about the pandemic. You know, I've thought a lot about uh, older couples, couples Mm -hmm. in their 70s and 80s, which is supposed to be one of the best times in the life cycle for couples because they fight less. They're kind of bored with their fights by the time they've been having (laughs) (laughs) I have not heard this, and I have so much to look forward to now. This is great. (laughs) We just have to hang on for 20 more years. (laughs) 
<laughs> they're spending so much time together, just as we all are now. So I was thinking, what's what might we learn from couples in their 70s and 80s that could be applicable to uh, couples of any age? And, um, you know, I think, well, thinking how they don't fight as much, um, and even when they old couples who've been together for decades tend to be more affectionate even during a fight. Um, and they're much more likely to be um, comfortable with dependency needs and each other's vulnerabilities as they wow. face their, some frailty and uh, mortality. And, and I think they're also, their lives get smaller you know, they don't have mm-hmm. parties. They don't, they're much more interested in focusing on the few people who are really meaningful to them. And, you know, not all of these things, but I, some of these things I, I've certainly noticed in my own relationship um, that sort of simplifying and turning more to my partner and more to a, a smaller group of um, confidants as something that that has come from the pandemic. Mm. Um, that's, beautiful. that's beautiful. Thank you, Anne. Yeah. Thank you, Anne. No, I'm so happy you agreed to do this. Because oh, me too. This I, has been such a nice conversation to have with you both. I think it will be a real comfort to people too. Um, just thinking about really just putting. You always do this, but putting such a, to my mind, a positive sort of easy to do spin for families on something that too often can be hurried or fraught or stressful. And you have a way, I think, of saying it doesn't need to be. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, and this is not one more thing you're failing at. Yeah. And just by letting go even a bit of it, it actually can yeah. be exactly what it's meant to be, that the less you try to control it um, and the more space you make, the the more good can come from it, from family meals. Amen. <laughs> Yay. Well, I know I feel greatly comforted, comforted from having talked with you today, Anne. So thank you. You've helped my family today. Oh, that's, that makes me feel good. Thank you. Good. Good. And aside from and for families who want to learn more, they can go to the family dinner project.org. Um, exactly. Anywhere else they should look for resources or ideas or things you want folks to know about. Yes. We wrote a book that came out about a year and a half ago called eat, laugh, talk, the family dinner playbook. That's based on 10 years of working with families and, has 52 weeks of easy recipes, games, and conversation starters. And the, that the sounds, very, sounds very giftable. It's very giftable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, the royalties all go to our community programs. So, uh, Even more recent. Yeah. I'm going to pick it up. Fabulous. We'll put links to that um, in with the podcast as well. So folks can find right. you and all your awesome work. Thank you so much. Thank you. Blessings, Anne. Take care. Bye-bye.